on April 29th of last year, I stood right here. We had just uh, we had just lost our senior pastor of six years. And we were reeling. And I told you that First Baptist Church is not on sabbatical, that we would be continuing the ministry of lifting up Jesus Christ. And we have done that faithfully with the assistance of an excellent interim pastor. We set to work immediately in forming a search team and beginning the work of finding a new senior pastor. As one of the representatives of that search team, it is with gratitude to God and a great deal of pleasure that I tell you this morning that we believe that Todd Reeder is that man. Todd is with us this morning, and it's my pleasure to invite him to the platform to open the Word of God for us this morning. I ask that, I, I know you're going to be looking at him and saying, what's this guy all about? But please, listen to God as he stirs your heart as well. Todd, let's join. All right, well, first things first, good morning. Hey, that was pretty healthy. I don't have to ask again. Thank you. The first Sunday I preached at the church I'm at now, I said good morning. It was like two people. I was like, whoa, 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 let's get started off right. And so thank you for, for that response. If you do have your Bible, you're going to need it, so please open it up to the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. And we're going to spend some time in chapter 53. Uh, we're going to spend some time looking at the first five verses, and we're going to be throughout that chapter a little bit in different places. But go ahead and prepare yourself for that. It is my hope that this morning's message is an encouragement to you and in your faith, and also that it would build a confidence in you about that book that is in front of you, that Bible, those scriptures, and specifically this prophet that you have in front of you. Your Bible is not a compilation of mythical stories that were compiled uh, for generations' sake that we can look back and say, oh, well, that was fun. That's a great story. Let me tell this one to my children. It is not for that purpose. It is a recording of God-ordained and God-organized history that all of this has a plan. It is a book full of details they're not just happy or sad recordings of events. These are details which are purposely put in front of you for God's glory. And so this morning, we're going to spend some time looking at God's word and his story of what he has for us. And so the book of Isaiah is an interesting book. It is honestly probably the most important book for the Christian in the Old Testament. Now, the book of Isaiah, it's considered to be by some to be the fifth gospel. Or some would even say it's the first gospel. Well, how does that work? Because it was written 700 years before Jesus even entered into this world. So how can it be one of the gospels? Well, this is what we're going to discover today. Uh, The prophecies that are here in Isaiah, they are not random predictions that Isaiah just had some dreams about and he wrote these things down. These were God-given, God-ordained prophecies. The most important prophecy of all of them that Isaiah talks about is right here this morning in in chapter 53, which we're going to look at 
And we're going to find that there's an explanation of something for us, and it has to do with the gospel message. The heading in most Bibles, and maybe in your Bible, is a heading over chapter 53 that says something to the effect of the suffering servant, or servant of some sort. And we're going to discover what does this mean. So would you please follow along with me in chapter 53, starting in the first five verses. It says this, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that as we go deeper into this, that you would open our ears and our hearts, that, Lord, we would see things maybe for the first time, and we would praise your name. We pray this in your Son's name, amen. Well, you have probably been told that this chapter here in Isaiah 53 is referring to Jesus and Jesus being the Messiah, but do you know why that is? Why is your Bible titled The Suffering Servant? Why is it just titled Jesus the Messiah. Well, we're going to discover this because the modern day Jew doesn't see chapter 53 as referring to Jesus as the Messiah or referring to the Messiah at all. The modern day Jew thinks that Isaiah 53 is not a reference in meaning the servant being a reference to the Messiah, but that it's about Israel. Now, one interesting tidbit of history is that rabbis taught for centuries that Isaiah 53 was directly connected to a messianic prophecy until about the 12th century A.D., and they changed their mind on that, and I don't know exactly know why, and we're going to discover some things this morning that are going to indicate that this, this really shouldn't be the case. Now, sometimes in the book of Isaiah, what you have in reference to the servant that is, that is referenced here, um, sometimes the servant in Isaiah is referred to as, as Israel. Sometimes it's representing the prophet himself, but that is not the case here in Isaiah 53. In this chapter, the servant is substituting himself both for Israel and for the prophet. And we see in verses 4 and 5 what we just read. It says, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. What is Isaiah saying? He's saying it is us that he has done this for. Us, including himself and including the nation. He is not excluding himself and what's taking part and what's being substituted on his behalf and on behalf of the nation. And this servant is different than what the rest of the book has has talked about. What Isaiah is describing in these verses is a substitutionary atonement for the guilty. And who is the guilty parties? Well, Israel and Isaiah. 
And, and how, why do we know this? Because if you go back to chapter 6 in Isaiah, in verse 5, what does Isaiah say about himself and about the people? It says this, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So the author of this book is indicating that this, is, this servant that is recorded here in 53 cannot be cannot be himself and cannot be the people of Israel because how does he view them? Unclean lips. Now, to further, I think, in the argument that Israel could be this servant, if you go to verse 8 in chapter 53, it says this, By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of, what are those two words? My people. Who's the my people in chapter 53? Israel. Isaiah himself this cannot mean that Israel is this servant in chapter 53. This, is, this cannot be a denial of a Messiah coming to have a substitutionary death. This is a revelation to us that this is what God has planned. This is God's organized plan that he would send a servant and that servant would suffer for our sake. Now in the book of Acts chapter 8, there's a story of uh, the man Philip. And Philip was traveling along the road, and he sees the Ethiopian eunuch, and he sees that he's reading a scroll up in a chariot, and what does Philip do? He goes up to him and asks, do you understand what you're reading? And what does, the, what does the man say? He says, well, how can I unless someone guides me? And so what does Philip do? He steps up into that chariot and sees, what is he reading? But Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. And what does Philip explain to this man? He explains that this section of scripture right here, Isaiah 53, is referring to the Messiah. And most specifically, Jesus as being the Messiah. So what do we learn from that? We learn that the first century Jewish Christian understanding of Isaiah 53 is that it is a messianic prophecy and specifically about Jesus Christ. Now, why is all this important? Maybe you're asking that question. Why does this matter? Well, because we can find the gospel message right here in the Old Testament, and we don't have to get to the New Testament. And so if you have a Jewish friend, this is a great place to go, because, again, they don't really care about the New Testament. You can go back to the Old and point right here to Isaiah 53, and you can show that there's an explanation of the gospel, and that that explanation of the gospel was some 700 years before Jesus came into this world. How does that happen? God organized, God ordained, God was doing something, he had planned something, and it comes to fulfillment. Now, the, the whole chapter of 53 is an explanation of the gospel. I want to take you just to verse 5, and I want to spend some time looking at just verse 5 this morning. Uh, let's look at that again. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. What the gospel is, is exactly what Isaiah is describing to us, in that we have a he instead of me substitution. It's him that is substituted for me. It is the innocent for the guilty. This is the good news of the gospel. And here in Isaiah 53, verse 5, there's four ways that the servant is being substituted for us. And Isaiah explains this to us. The first is this, in the first line, it says, but he was pierced. For our transgressions. He was pierced for our transgressions. 
If you go to the New Testament in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, Paul explains what, is this, what does this mean? And he says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What do we have in Isaiah 53? What do we have right here in this first line? He was pierced. And and the Hebrew is this idea of being bored through, of pierced through him. And this is very familiar to what we hear in Psalm 22, verse 16, which is another, basically a perfect description of what happens to Jesus on the cross. Psalm 22, 16 says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. This is what happens to Jesus. We know that. We can look back historically and see and see from the Gospels, the four Gospels. This is what happens to Jesus. But right here in the Old Testament, there's this evidence given to us that he was pierced. Why? Our transgressions. What does it mean? What does transgression mean? It means that you've broken the law. Whose law have we broken? Your parents? Well, probably all of you have broken your parents' law. My kids do. And so you've probably done that, but does that really matter? Like, what kind of authority do they have over you? Well, quite a bit. But are they the ultimate authority in this universe? No. God is. And so whose law have you broken? Who have you transgressed against? God. So why was Jesus, why was this servant pierced? Your law-breaking. Let's look at the second line and the, the second idea that's here about the substitution. It says, he was crushed for our iniquities. Romans 5 again, verses 18 and 19 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Why was Jesus crushed? He was crushed for our iniquity. We are the guilty ones. Because of our our father Adam, we have inherited this sinful nature, and that's all we've ever wanted to do is sin and rebel against God. And what has happened has been generationally throughout time, we have done nothing but shake our fist at God, spit in his face, rebel against him, commit cosmic acts of treason against God, And what does he do for us? He substitutes for the unrighteous. And he gives his righteous son. 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of the best verses in the New Testament, I think, says, For our sake, he, being God, the Father, made him, the Son, to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin. There was no sin in him. He was completely and totally innocent in every thought, word, and deed. Good luck doing that this week, right? Good luck just doing that in your thought life. Maybe you can control your tongue. Maybe you can control your actions. But man, it's hard to control our thoughts, isn't it? He made him to be sin. To be sin. Think on that for a second. He became Your sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was crushed for your iniquity, your sin, 
so that the wrath of God would not fall upon you, but that you would be seen now as righteous before God. The third way that this servant is substituted for us is in the third line. It says, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Now, I don't know in your, in your everyday conversations if you use the word chastisement or chastening. Um, probably not. But the, the word chastisement means to punish. So you can think of it that way. Our punishment, our punishment, he took. What I deserved in punishment from God was put upon him. And what did it do? That it brought us peace. What is peace? Well, it's a restored state with God. Now, this doesn't just mean that there's, there's nonviolence now between man and God, that God is now not going to bring uh, just uh, uh, violence against people. Because, if, you know, if you ask somebody in their marriage, in their relationship, and you say, so are things peaceful at home? And they say, yeah, you know, things are great now. You know, we're not pulling guns on each other. We're not throwing plates at each other's head. Like, it's pretty peaceful. Hopefully, you're not going to end the conversation there and be like, oh, that's great. You're probably going to ask other questions like, eh, let's talk about what peace really is. Peace is more than just nonviolence. Peace means that there's no disturbance in the relationship. There's no no bitterness and tension that's there. And this is exactly what we have through this servant is that we no longer have tension between us and God. It's gone. Why? Because our punishment was put upon him. Romans 5 again, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How is it that you have peace with God? There's only one way, friend. It's this servant of Isaiah 53. There's only one way in which you can have not only nonviolence between you and God, but there'd be a complete restoration of your relationship. That you would be acceptable in his sight and that he wouldn't put any kind of punishment upon you. He wouldn't crush you. He wouldn't pierce you. But he would welcome you. There's no bitterness There's no hostility. There's peace. But there's only peace through this servant. Look at the last line, the fourth thing here that Isaiah explains to us. It says, with his wounds we are healed. Now, uh, there's one key point that I need to make about this one word that's found here, wounds. In almost all English translations of the Bible, how the translators have translated this Hebrew word has been in a plural form. The problem with that is that the Hebrew wording is not in plural, but in singular form. So it would make this verse say something more to the effect of, with his wound, we are healed. Again, why does that matter? What does it matter between a plural form and a a singular form of a word? Well, understand that it's not your physical wounds that need healed. Even though maybe you have physical ailments and you pray that they would be healed by God, that is not the wound in which you have that needs to be healed. Those physical conditions that you have, they really pale in comparison to the condition that you have that has to be healed and has to be healed spiritually. The greatest wound that we have suffered, this spiritual wound, is the wound of sin. How can that be healed? How can you restore your soul when it has been mortally wounded? What doctor do you go to? What friend do you go to that can heal this mortal wound of sin There's not one, but one. 
There's only one place that you can find this kind of healing, that your relationship can be restored with God, that there's not hostility between you and God because of all of your heinous acts of treason against him. There's only one way this can be restored, and it's not in you or in your friend or in your pastor or in your youth leader or in anybody else on this earth, but only one. And Isaiah 53, verse 5 is telling us, it's with his wound we are healed. What is this wound that he suffered? What is the wound? Well, it's not the beating that Jesus took or the thorn that was put upon his head. This is why the plural form of this word is a dangerous thing to use because it leads people into a misunderstanding of what this means. The the word faith movement uses things like this verse and they make claims like this. They say, well, believe in the wounds of Jesus for your healing If you proclaim this truth over your sickness, then you'll be healed. This conclusion that they're drawing is not from the proper context of Isaiah 53, 5. It's coming from somebody else's misunderstanding or purposeful distortion of what this verse says. And so if we have a clear understanding of one simple word, it clears this up for us. And we see that it's not Jesus' beatings that bring about a physical healing, but it was the final wound of death that heals us spiritually. He became sin, and that sin was punished. Finally punished to death. And it's in Jesus' death that we can be restored to God. If you look at verse 6, the next verse in Isaiah 53, it, it explains this wound. It says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Now the we there, again, is Israel, Isaiah. Today you can include yourself. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What is the wound that he had to suffer? It was the wound of our iniquity, not his. It was our chastisement, our punishment that he took upon himself. And what do we gain from this? We gained a healing. We are healed by this wound. In First Peter Chapter 3, verse 15, verse 18, I'm sorry. Peter explains this. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that we might, he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. What did Jesus suffer for you? He suffered a final death for your sin that would make you right with God. By his wound we are healed. The unrighteous can now be declared righteous. The sinner is not declared sinner any longer, but declared son or daughter. How? Because of this one wound that Jesus takes upon himself that he did not deserve. The righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus dying is the heart of the gospel message. If we take this out of our theology, we remove this from our teaching, all of it falls apart. There is no good news We cannot compromise this fact that the servant of God had to come and he had to die and he had to die in the place of sinners. The Jews don't believe this. They don't believe that Isaiah 53 is reference to the Messiah. And Islam, they believe that Jesus didn't die at all. There's a lookalike in his place that died. Both are denying the most essential part of the gospel. That this substitution that is made by God was made 
made on the behalf of sinners like us. Why did Jesus come? He came to die. He came to die for you, for your sin, for mine. Not only does Isaiah explain to us this good news that there's a substitution for us, but there's something else that happens with this substitution. He will rise from the grave. Look at verse 10. It says, Yet, as the will of the Lord... uh, Let me back up. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He He has put himself to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt... He shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. There's three indications here in verse 10 that the resurrection of this servant will happen. And he lists them out for us. The first is this, he shall see his offspring. Well, how will the servant see his offspring if he's dead? Well, he has to be resurrected. The other question is, who is the offspring? Did Jesus have children? Well, according to Dan Brown. um, But... (laughs) If you get that reference, good. He didn't. So what offspring is this talking about? It's those in which he came to die for. The substitutionary death of Jesus brings about an offspring of righteous children before God. These are those that he's going to see. It also says he shall prolong his days. Now how is it that he can prolong his days if he's in the grave? There has to be a resurrection And so he has to come back to life. The third is this. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Well, what kind of hand is this if it's dead? What kind of power is there if it's dead? So this must mean that there's life in him again. And it's powerful. Another indication of the resurrection is found in the next verse, verse 11. It says, Out of the anguish of his soul he he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. As it says here in the first part of this verse, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. The servant will see again. He will rise from the grave. He will see, and what will he see? He will see what he has died for. He will see what he has accomplished in his substitutionary death. He will see that he has brought many people into the kingdom of God by his righteous work. And when will he see this? Well, it's after he's died, after he's resurrected. This is when he will see it. But whenever he sees it, what does it say he will feel in this? It says he will be satisfied. He will be delighted. Jesus is delighted at seeing his offspring. Christian, have you thought about that this morning? That Jesus Christ is delighted in you? Maybe you feel as though, man, nobody delights in me. Nobody, nobody loves me. Nobody delights or is satisfied in what I accomplish, what I do. Jesus Christ does. Because it says so right here. It says that he's satisfied with what he's accomplished in you. He will be delighted with the outcome of his sufferings, that he would save you. You are his. You are rescued by him. He suffered this wound, and what he got was you. He loves you. Why did Jesus die on the cross? He died for you. Why did Jesus resurrect from the grave? For himself. It says he will be satisfied with his results, but he also was resurrected for you as well. 
Because he's going to enjoy you and you're going to enjoy him from all, for all of eternity. It is for his pleasure and for yours that he resurrected. Now, as I said earlier, I want this message to be an encouragement. And my last, final effort at this is to take you backwards to chapter 52 in Isaiah. So I want you to go to Isaiah 52 in verses 13 and verse 15 There's another encouraging thing that we can find here. Verse 13 says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. What do we learn from these two verses? Well, again, this is referring to the suffering servant. This is who it's referring to. And we learn that this servant is guaranteed success. He's guaranteed success. Again, when would this servant come? Some 700 years later. What a prediction. That God would promise that the mission that he would send the son on, it would be successful. It would be fruitful. That whenever Jesus died... He wouldn't fail. He would win. You win. We win. Because of Jesus' death. He was not bound to the grave. He conquers it. He was successful. And guess what? He is still successful in what? Saving sinners. We're all sinners in this room. I don't know if that was a revelation for you or not just now. We're all sinners. We have all fallen well short of the glory of God. We have all rebelled against Him. We have not trusted in His word. We have thought, well, my way is better than His. And thank God He didn't leave us in that state. That He sent His Son to suffer for us. So the question is for you, sinner, that sits here today. Have you trusted in this suffering servant? Have you trusted in this servant of Isaiah 53 to rescue you from the wrath of God? Have you trusted in him to be pierced on on your behalf? Have you trusted him with your life? Don't you realize that there is no other way for you to be saved but through one, and it's through this one servant that is prophesied about some 700 years before Jesus comes into this world? It's only him. You are in a desperate need of a substitute. Don't you know that? Don't you know you have a desperate need for a substitute? Who is it? This servant of Isaiah 53. It is Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. Turn from your sin. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus, in his work, not yours. Christian, let me challenge you this morning with this final word. Christian, I want you to understand that you are not going to be called to a substitutionary death. Right? You're not going to be called to that. Why? It wouldn't do any good. It wouldn't do any good for you to be substituted for anybody else. So stop trying, by the way. Stop trying to substitute yourself for somebody else's sin. You can't pay for that. It is only Jesus Christ But we need to understand as well, we have been called to a similar task 
Not in that we can be substituted for somebody else's sin and save them spiritually, but you have been called, according to Matthew 28, to go and make disciples, which is a call for you to go and die so that others might live. Not that maybe it's a, an actual physical death, but you would lay down your life so that others would come to know him, so that their wound of sin could be healed by his wound. That you have experienced that and you want others to experience that healing that is only found in one, this servant of Isaiah 53. Be encouraged this morning that God's word, God's word has been true, it will be true, and that you can teach it. You can explain it. You can show people from the Old Testament, here's the message of the gospel. That there's a substitution that is made and it's made on your behalf, and that you can be saved. Christian, we have quite a message to share, don't we? That was a little weaker than the good morning. <laughs> Let's try that again. Christian, you have a great message to share, don't you? Yeah. Let's go do it. Would you pray with me? Father, your word is good. God, it is an encouragement to us that we would see and be amazed at your goodness. You are truly an awesome God. There's not enough words in any language or all languages to describe who you are. We thank you. We thank you. For your substitution. God we thank you for your son. That you would give him in our place. For the unrighteous. That he would die. And you would count his work. His work. As justifying sinners. Lord encourage us this morning as believers. That we would share this good news. Of the substitution. Of the wound that can be healed and of this suffering servant. Lord, I pray that we would leave this place excited about your word, excited about this year, excited about what you're doing in our life and our heart, but because of the gospel. Lord, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.